Revelation chapter 21. We are still in Jeremiah, but we sort of have been doing a trilogy from Isaiah chapter 65 where we first read about the new heaven and the new earth. And leading up to that, over the last several weeks, we've been taking you through sort of the, the chronology of events and how they unfold. And we're living in that period of time where we believe we're living in the last days. And the reason uh, we believe that is because of the regathering of the nation of Israel some 68 years ago when they declared themselves an, a nation on May 14, 1948. And it's only in that context can we actually say that we're living in the last days because Jesus says when that happens, when the generation sees it, they will see the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy. So the next thing on the order of events is the imminent taking out of the church that we call the rapture. That is something that could have happened any time. Paul thought it could have happened in his time. We use the word imminent or imminency, uh, meaning it could happen at any time. As far as I'm concerned, I wish it would happen right now. But until that happens, it can't unfold the next period of time, which we call the tribulation. And immediately after that, or very shortly after that, we have the introduction of the Antichrist, the peace treaty with Israel to build their temple. This will last for seven years. After that seven-year period of time, we go into what we've prayed for from the time we were little kids, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. The kingdom that was promised to Israel will last for 1,000 years. We call it the millennium. It occurs six times in seven verses in Revelation chapter 20. And um, it's clearly one of the focal points of the book of Isaiah that we just finished. At the end of the thousand years, we find that the devil is once again released so that before we enter into what we're going to study this morning, the eternal realm, where we have the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, before that can happen, there will be those who were brought up during the millennial reign. You had to be saved to make it into the millennium, but the earth will be repopulated. People who are born during that period of time will have to make up their own mind whether or not they want to accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. Many will not. So at the end of the thousand years, Satan's released, and it's amazing how many people will choose to follow the devil rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think one of the points that we make is we like to say that um, if you just listen to your heart and let your heart lead you, you can't do wrong. <laughs> and the Bible tells us just the opposite. The Bible says, my heart is very tricky. It's deceitfully wicked. Above all things, who can know it? We have to learn not to live by emotion, but rather what does the word of God say? My heart says, well, how can a loving God ever send anybody to hell? That's what my heart says. But the Bible clearly teaches that uh, God's willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he says, unless you repent, you will perish. He says, don't think that I've come to bring peace. I have not. I've come to draw a line. And there will be those who will be for me. And there will be those who will be against me. Even in your own family. Father against his son and mother against his daughter. 
And he says, I don't think that I've come to bring peace. I have not. But my heart tells me something different, and I'm told not to trust it. Now, to me, the absolute proof of what I just said is sometimes we blame our personalities, the way we are, because how my father raised me, how my mother raised me, what side of the block I grew up on, poor side of town, rich side of town. I'm a product of my society. If that were true, now you have the millennium. You have the perfect environment. The curse is removed. And you have none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who is king. Perfect environment, perfect ruler, but still free will. And with all of that, man will, some of them will actually choose to follow. And the attitude is basically this. He's not going to rule over me. I'm the head of my own life, and nobody's going to tell me what I can and cannot do. Uh, The Bible says that he will rule with a rod of righteousness. He will enforce it during that period of time. But if you're going to go into eternity now and be with him and actually be called the bride of Christ, well, he wants you to love him, and he doesn't want to have to force your will. And that's what I would tell you this morning. You're a believer in Jesus Christ because you chose to be so. Hopefully somebody didn't twist your arm or uh, try to scare the hell out of you to become a Christian. But you actually fell in love with the one who took your sin and placed it upon himself. And you're just a grateful person who loves the Lord because of what he's done for you. So as we get into this next, what we're going to study this morning is not heaven, but it's what comes down out of heaven. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always existed. That's hard for, to wrap my head around. They've always been. And at some point in eternity, he created the angels. We know that the angels were created before the planet Earth was created because Job tells us that when he did create the planet Earth, all the angels rejoiced and sang. So we have angels first, the planet Earth second, but we don't have the sun, moon, and stars created for another four days. So the Earth is unique in that it just didn't... (laughs) This is so ludicrous. Well, first there was nothing, and then it exploded. Now, if that's not dumb, I don't know what is. First there was nothing, and then it exploded, and after millions of years, some little moisture fell on a rock, and here we are today. Give me a break, okay? But if you told a lie long enough, people will buy into it. But before, again, this is a love story, and the New Jerusalem is called the Bride of Christ. And if you don't want to be there, then that's your free will. But for those who have accepted Jesus, we're waiting uh, for our honeymoon. And um, that's what the subject of our study is this morning. It's called the New Heavens and the New Earth. Let's pick it up. Let me just give you a little bit of how different it's going to be from the millennial reign. Number one, there will be the total absence of sin and temptation and testing in the new creation. This within itself makes it radically different. The new Jerusalem, number two, coming down from God out of heaven does not mean another satellite for the earth, but rather the earth and all of the new creation and all the galactic system will revolve around the new Jerusalem. It is the center of the universe, and everything will revolve around the New Jerusalem. 
The law of gravity, as we know it, will be radically revised. And because of the, the structure of the gravity system, that'll be completely different. The law of gravity will be different than it is on our own planet. Um, another difference, there will be no more sun to give light, for God himself will supply the source for the entire universe. Uh, there will be the absence of night. There's no night there because we do not need that time to rest since we'll have new bodies. I'm personally very much looking forward to that. There will no longer be any sea on the new earth. The new earth today is approximately covers, the sea covers about three-fourths of the surface of the earth. Uh, this denotes a revolution in life upon the earth. Apparently man, during this period of time, doesn't have to eat. But um, according to Revelation 22.2, there is the fruit from the trees that produce fruit on a monthly basis. But most importantly, the new Jerusalem is going to be the dwelling place of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father, together with the throne of God made visible, and man will actually be able to behold him face to face. Now, as Jesus taught about the reality of this coming, how many, how many of you have heard Oh, you Christians, you're always talking about the end of the world. Doomsdayers, the end of the world. Next time somebody tells you that, said, you don't know your Bible very well, do you? Because the end of the world isn't going to happen for at least another 1,007 years. That's at the very least. Jesus said in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away. He said it's going to happen. He says, but my words will by no means pass away. He's talking about at the end of the millennial reign. Jesus also, in teaching about heaven, says, No man has ascended to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Jesus is the only one who's been there, only one qualified to tell us what it's like when he came down here. And then he went back up again, only to come back at the second coming of Christ with the church. Now, This was written before the Apostle Paul was taken to the third heaven. So up to this time, I believe Paul did uh, visit heaven. He had one of those out-of-body experiences, and we'll go to that a little bit later. But for now, I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and uh, where Jesus is talking about the New Jerusalem. And the context of this... If you don't have chapters 13 and 14, if it was one continuing flowing sentence, the sentence before, let not your heart be troubled, well, the sentence before is where Peter is bragging about he will never, ever deny you. Lord, I will never deny you. I'm a man's man. I mean, these other guys might flake out. I can understand them doing that. But remember, you called me Rocky. And I'm not going to let you down. So the Lord says, Peter, listen up. He says, this night, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. That's exactly what happened. And I I believe that Peter checked out at this time. He failed in what he considered his strong suit, strength. And he had to learn the hard way that... um, Without Jesus, you can do nothing, but with the Lord, you can do all things. So 
Somebody want to give me an amen or not? But he was saying, don't worry, it's me, Lord. I can handle it. Well, he couldn't handle it. And Peter broke down that night. And I believe he checked himself out from being a disciple. He didn't feel qualified anymore. He had let down his Lord. So that's the last verse of chapter 13, the first verse of chapter 14. But he says, let not your heart be troubled. And I think Peter is probably, if you're continuing the train of thought, is who he's got in mind. Pete, I know you. Um, you believe in me, believe also, you believe in God, believe also in me. Oh, in my father's house is a reference to our study this morning, the New Jerusalem. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. The New Jerusalem it was, has been being prepared ever since the Lord left. And if you're familiar with a, a, a typical traditional Jewish wedding, this is, this is what happens. They have the betrothal, and the groom leaves, and he goes and he builds an addition onto his father's house. And when it's done, only the father can give the green light to say, okay, you can go get your bride. The father's going to inspect the dwelling place for the bride, and when he's happy with it, he tells the son, okay, it's, it's good enough, you can go get your bride now. The bride, on the other hand, like the ten wise virgins, um, were told just to be ready uh, because you don't know what hour your Lord does come. And uh, the, uh, the shout went out, behold, the bridegroom cometh, that's Matthew 25. And she was supposed to be ready at a moment's notice. I mean, she had to be Johnny on the spot and, and uh, five were wise, they were ready, five weren't. And the five that were ready, they went. And the five that weren't ready, where they were left behind. And so what the Lord has been doing uh, has been preparing a place for you. It's called the New Jerusalem. And then he says, I have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, and he didn't prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you're going to be also. And where I go, you know. And the way, you know. And um, it's at this point here, in verses 5 and 6, it was Thomas who um, was asking, everybody else was probably thinking, (coughs) excuse me, Lord, we don't know where you're going and how are we supposed to know the way? And then we have this unequivocal Absolute statement by the Lord himself that everybody knows. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And here we have a very absolute definitive statement on the only way a person can make it in to heaven. And to much of the world today, it seems narrow-minded. By the way, it is narrow. Jesus says, narrow is a gate that leads to life. Few be that find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many be that find that. So basically, the Bible is saying that the majority of people on the planet aren't going to make it. Because the majority of the people on the planet, especially these days, 
are so open to so many alternatives. It's like all roads lead to Rome. Whatever your religion is, it doesn't matter as long as you believe in God. Allah is the same as the God of Israel. No, it's not. And Jesus made it very, very clear. There's no other name under heaven except Jesus Christ, whereby you must be saved. Now, I happened to watch the entire funeral of Muhammad Ali. Anybody else catch it besides me? Just raise your hand. Some of you did. And um, um, I was blown away in a lot of ways. But um, let me just tell you a little bit who was there. Personally, Ali handpicked the speakers for himself. Um, He had Kevin Cosby there. He had a Christian named uh, Reverend Kriegel there. He had a rabbi there named Lanier. He had uh, two Indian chiefs, uh, Chief Sidney Hill and Chief Oren Lyons, um, for American, uh, representing the American Indians and their views of religion. Um, they had the two daughters get up and speak of Muhammad Ali. And between services, I didn't remember them saying this, but they're saying, yes, Dad is definitely in heaven right now. And then what kicked it off were that the last two was Billy Crystal, who I'm a big fan of. I think he's one of the funniest guys on the planet. He's Jewish. And um, he became extremely good friends with Muhammad Ali. Uh, I don't, you older folks will remember him imitating Howard Cosell and, and um, Muhammad Ali. And the routine he puts on is just hilarious. I mean, he, he kills you with his humor. But in so doing, in closing it all up, here's Billy Crystal. He says, here I am, a Jew already. And here's my best friend. He's a Muslim. And he says, why can't we all get along? And it was the biggest love fest that I've, I've ever Scene, and um, it was so well done. I even enjoyed Bill Clinton's speech at the end of it. <laughs> and he got up and wasn't presidential at all, um, but just talked about uh, the humanity. Billy Crystal told the story about Muhammad Ali and his generosity and his many uh, charities, and basically just being a nice guy, which he was. And he was probably one of the best prize fighters, if not the best, uh, on the planet. His daughters were saying up in heaven, he's saying, I'm still the greatest. (laughs) How would you like me to get up after this love fest and come up and say, look, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. Muhammad, you died a Muslim, and you're not in heaven. Would that be throwing cold water on that party or what? Yeah, and it also would marginalize me as one of the, those bigoted people that are out there that all these laws are now being tolerated. That would be considered hate speech in a lot of circles today. But you want to know what, folks? It's the gospel truth. And heaven uh, and earth will pass away, but not this book. And you can't let your heart overtake truth. And that's why Jesus said, I am the truth. I'm the only one who ever lived the perfect life. You didn't. So, as I was listening, they told this story. And uh, Muhammad picked up this hitchhiker one day, 
and asked me if he could help him out. He says, yeah, if you can get me to this corner and this corner, that'd be great. And uh, his heart went out to him. He, he knew he didn't have much money. So he took him there. He says, well, why don't you just let me take you? Where do you live? I'll take you to your house. He says, oh, you don't have to do that. And he says, no, I want to do it. So he gets him to his house, and then he reaches in his pocket and pulls out a wad of $100 bills and says, here, I want to give this to you because I want to make it to heaven. And that's what Billy Crystal was saying. And the guy evidently was a Christian or a believer. He says, no, I can't take it because I'm trying to make it to heaven too. So my point is this. They're, the mentality of most people is if I'm good enough, I might get in. And I'm going to keep doing good things until I make it in. And the majority of people on the planet, that's their world's view. But that's not the gospel. Jesus said, unless you repent, you're going to perish. He's not willing that any, it's not in the Father's heart. But he paid the ultimate price. God loved the world so much that he did give his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And then it says, for the son came in the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. The world is already condemned. Gang, if, if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you need to realize you're already condemned. It's a, it's a mute point. You need to be saved from being condemned. And... Um, so our message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is being more and more marginalized. And as time goes on, you'll be less and less popular. Jesus said it was going to happen. Don't think I've come to peace, bring peace. I haven't. I've come to draw a line for me or against me, period. Good place for an amen. But it's true. Okay. Um, as, let's, let me switch gears and get back to um, the place that Jesus said he was going to prepare he says, concerning heaven, Paul writing, he says, Eyes have not seen, nor has ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of any man, the things that God has prepared for them that love him. You can't imagine it. It's like a, a baby in his mother's womb. Here's these voices out there mumbling somewhere, and the, the child is in this prideful side and moving around, recognizing his mother's voice, has no idea what the outside world is like. But then after nine months, all of a sudden, pow! (laughs) And there's an explosion, and all of a sudden there's lights and colors and faces, and there's this whole new experience, what all you knew before is this little realm that you were being developed in for nine months, and now you're thrown out into this unbelievably huge, vast world with so many different sights and sounds. Paul teaches on this. I'm going to have you turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews 11 we call the Hall of Faith. It talks about all those who died who hadn't received the promise. The promise, of course, was heaven and the Messiah coming. And there's, in the first part of it, we have Abel and Enoch and Noah, Abraham and Sarah. And in verse 13, it talks about their death. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them, they received the promise, and embraced them. Having seen them afar off, they were assured of them, embraced them, 
and confessed that they were just strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They knew they were just passing through, and this isn't home. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. Get this, for he has prepared a city for them. There's a city that we call the New Jerusalem that the Lord in John 14 says, I go to prepare a place for you. And they're going to have access to this city. If you would, the one person who did see paradise is Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you would, I'm going to give you a moment just to turn over there. I'll give you the background to this. I truly believe this is one of those life after death experiences. I believe it's possible, especially with the technology we have today, where people actually die. But because of uh, the paddles that you can put on them, bring, bring the heart back. Um, some of the stories I don't buy. Some of them I do. I have personal friends that have experienced it. And I, I believe their stories because I know them as people. But I believe Paul, too. And it's in the word of God. So here we are in chapter 12, 2 Corinthians 12. Paul says in verse 1, it's doubtless not profitable for me to boast, but I'm going to come now to visions and revelations of the Lord. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, 14 years ago, Paul would have been outside a city and he was stoned and they left him for dead. And I believe this is where that happened. He says, whether in the body, I don't know, whether out of the body, I don't know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Let's just do this quickly. Um, Judy and I woke up this morning, we're having our breakfast, and we have a bird feeder outside, well, nine bird feeders outside of our kitchen window. And she counted over 40 Canadian geese that are chicks, and they're starting to develop more and more and more and more. Well, they're going to they're gonna take off pretty soon, and they're going to fly. Where are they going to fly? They're going to fly in what we'd call the heavens, the atmosphere. That would be the first heaven. Then we have the cosmos, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the galaxies. And that is the second heaven. Paul said he was taken to the third heaven, and he called it paradise. And so what we have here is, I believe, him taken to heaven, because he says so himself. Verse 4, he was caught up into paradise, and I heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful, For a man to hear. He says, I can't put it into words. What I heard. That's biblical. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, Eyes have not seen, ear hath not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. That baby coming out of the womb had no idea what's on the other side. When we enter that realm into heaven, it can't be described in human verbiage. And Paul said, it's not lawful for a man to utter what I heard, which always mystified me, because if I went to heaven, I want to know what you saw. But he told me, 
what he heard couldn't be manifested because there's just no human language to put it in. What does that have my curiosity? So Paul was there. That brings us to, let's go back to our text. That was intro right there. Revelation 21, verse 1. This is now, would be the sixth world, if you will. And some of you are thinking, what do you mean, the sixth world? Well, the original world, remember, was without sin and without the curse. It was ideal. Man didn't have to work. Um, And that existed until Adam and Eve sinned. So there was a world that existed that was without the curse. That's the first world. And then there was the world after that, and we call that the pre-flood world. That goes all the way up to Genesis 6, where it says that the thoughts of men were only evil continually. There wasn't anyone that was seeking the Lord except Noah. He was righteous in his generation. So that we have that world. There was a world that existed before the flood came. And then there was a world that we're living in now, which would be post-flood, the present world, that will bring us into a judgment of the world that we call the tribulation. That's going to last for seven years where the world is virtually hammered and pulpited, where it says men will be rare on the earth in those days. We call that the tribulation. And then the curse is removed, and nobody who isn't saved can now enter the next thousand years. That's the kingdom. So that's another world, where the curse is removed, according to Romans 8, and we have a thousand years of living those that are saved will be living in the millennial reign. So that brings us to chapter 21, and we're going from the kingdom age of a thousand years into eternity. And we only have two chapters in the entire Bible that really deal with eternity. And so the verse one says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there's no more sea. Evidently, there was still a sea during the millennium, but not during um, eternity in the New Jerusalem. So um, John then begins to describe that place that Jesus has been preparing for us. And here's a description of where you're going to live if you're saved and your name is put in the book of life. This is going to be your home address. You're going to feel like you're at home when you're there. I'm finally home. And um, boy, I'll tell you, the more this world goes on, this world is not my home. I'm only passing through. And my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And I just get more homesick as um, I see just how the inevitable, where this world is headed. But now we have a description in verses 2 through 8. I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. So let's get this straight. The new Jerusalem is not heaven. It's coming down from heaven. Adorned, uh, is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I beheld a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. 
and God himself will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eye, and there shall be no more death. There was death in the millennium, a little child dying at 100. There was sin in the millennium, but not in eternity. No more sin, no more death, no more tears, sorrow, crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away, And then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and they're faithful. Let me just stop here in case I forget to mention it later. Most of mainline Protestantism, mainline Roman Catholicism, do not take a literal view of the book of Revelation. They just feel it's too far out there. And they allegorize it and they spiritualize it. If that's the case, why would the Lord say, right, for these words are true and they're faithful? Revelation 1 verse 3 said, blessed is he who reads this book. In other words, in Revelation, I'm special. The last thing it says in in the word of God is don't mess with it. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. I want it to stay the way that it is. Now, a little sidetrack here of of why Protestantism and Roman Catholicism take this viewpoint. After 70 AD, when Jerusalem was destroyed the last time, there was no Israel. There was no Jewish homeland. And so imagine being a Bible teacher in 300s or 400s or 500s or 600s or 700s, all the way up to the 1900s. And you had to teach the book of Revelation, which is all about primarily Israel. There is no Israel. So man leaning upon his own understanding go, well, there's no Israel. So what God must have meant, leaning upon her own understanding, was the promises that were meant for Israel really are given to the church. We call that replacement theology. Replacing the promises that God gave to Israel, and now they're applicable to Israel. The church. Um, I understand their thinking. The only problem is it's not biblical. And there was always a handful of people that go, we don't know. But God said in Isaiah 11, 11, he's going to bring them back a second time. What happened? May 14th, 1948, David ben Gurion gets up and he says, I declare this piece of land to be Israel. And it's been there for the last 68 years. And Jesus said the generation that sees it come back will be the generation that sees the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy. That's why I believe the rapture of the church is imminent. And it's right around the corner. You know, Pastor Chuck always used to tell this cute story um, about um, Christmas. He says, well, um, oh, no, about Thanksgiving. He says, well, I know Thanksgiving has got to be really, really close. And his wife would say, well, honey, how do you know? Because all the Christmas decorations are going up. (laughs) Think it through. I know that Thanksgiving is coming. Why? Because all the Christmas decorations are up. So we know that it's late because Israel is back in the land. I mean, that is the sign. When Jesus said, make sure you're watching. Israel is the primary thing we were to watch for. And so when he says, write these things because they're true, 
The book of Revelation is literal. It is meant to be taken literally. Good place for it, amen. And it's the most important book right now in the Bible because these things are unfolding. And then he said, it is done. I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But of course, the unsaved, cowardly, unbelieving, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in a lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There is a real hell, and it should scare the hell out of you, literally. And uh, that godly fear today that... that um, that we're trying to explain away because of leaning upon our own understanding. The Bible clearly teaches an eternal place uh, called the New Jerusalem, which is your home. But if you die in your sins, you will be a part of the second death. And that is without discussion, or it's not that difficult to determine. This is pretty black, and it is pretty white. And um, that's why Jesus agonized so in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, is there any other way, Father, if there's any other way that mankind can go to heaven so that I don't have to go to the cross and bear the sins of the world, that's what I want. But he prefaced it and he said, but nevertheless, if there is no other way, then thy will be done. There was no other way. The only way that you can go to heaven is by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There is no other way. It was even Jesus' prayer request. If there is any other way. No. Son, you're the only one who's lived the perfect life. You're the only one who always told the truth. You never stole. You never had an impure thought. You're the perfect God, man. And you're the sacrifice. And I'm going to give your righteousness to those who will believe on you. And I'm going to put their sin upon you. And we call that the, the great exchange. That's why Jesus is the only way. And uh, he goes on, that brings us to verse 8. Beginning with verse 9, we actually have um, a description now of the city itself. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me and said, Come and I will show you the bride. So the, the city itself is called the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in his spirit to a great and high mountain, showed me a great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And also she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates, and the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So there you have the 12 tribes. Mentioned Benjamin, Ephraim, Napoli, Asher, um, Benjamin, Dan. And and these are the the names that are written on the gates. And then verse 13, three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So you have a representative of 12 from the Old Testament, and then you have a representative of the disciples and uh, their names. 
Now, I believe Paul is going to be on that list. I, don't, I think when the guys picked Matthias, he's never mentioned again, but Paul clearly de- declares in his writing that he is an apostle. And verse 15, And he who talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, its gate, and its wall. Okay, even though the best we can do here is read, and I'm going to give you dimensions, and um, I'm going to give you the color of the different foundations, uh, let me preface all that by saying there's no way that man is going to be able to describe what we're about to read next. But it gives it to us anyway. So the measurement of the city, verse 16, is a square. And the length is as great as breadth. And the city, with a reed, 12,000 furlongs, length, breadth, and height are equal. That's roughly 1,500 miles. So to give you some sort of perspective of how big the new Jerusalem is, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, and 1,500 miles high. Um, I'm going to show you what it would look like if we just took a chunk of, the, of America and placed the new Jerusalem in it. That's how much space it would take up. So your eternal home, in human, it says in here, human measurements, that's going to be at only imagine now going 1,500 um, miles in straight up. And that's going to be our eternal home. Um, McGee worked this, Javern McGee was working this out, and he has his own theory on this. It's a pretty good one, but I'll let you make up your own mind. Here's another, um, what he thinks is going on here. And it's a, it's a cube, but then he wants it to be a circumference because we're used to, when we look out into the heavens, seeing things uh, circular, not a square box. And so what he did, and I'm quoting him, he says, the difficulty re- resolves what we think of a city as a cube within a crystal clear sphere. What we are given are the inside measurements. I think of it as a big plastic ball with a cube inside, having all eight of its corners touching the sphere. As this involves mathematics, which I could not figure out, I asked both a mathematician and an engineer involved in the space program to determine what the circumference of the sphere would be. They both came up with the same answer, to enclose a cube measuring 1,500 miles on each side, the circumference of the sphere would be about 8,164 miles. The diameter of the moon is 2,160 miles, and that of the New Jerusalem sphere is about 2,600. Thus, the New Jerusalem will be somewhat larger than the moon, and it will be a sphere like any other heavenly bodies. I personally believe that this is a picture that is given to us here. I think it's a good theory, but I'm not completely sold on it. And uh, someday we're going to know for sure. I was talking between services, a guy who's a mathematician, who's actually done a lot of work and research in this. And um, I thought I'd like to get together and talk to you more about it later. But when we ended it all, and we're trying to figure out how this thing really is going to look, what's going to happen someday is we're going to see it. We're going to go, oh, yeah, (laughs) of course. But not until then. 
So in these verses here, 9 um, through oh, 18, um, it, it tells us that uh, the different foundations, the, the stone that's mentioned here that's jasper um, suggests that it's probably a diamond. These are all very precious materials. The diamond seems to fit the description better than any other stone known to to man. The similarity of the Hebrew word for crystal in Ezekiel 1 to the Hebrew word for ice helps to bring this view. The New Jerusalem is a diamond in a gold mounting. The city is the engagement ring of the bride. In fact, it is the wedding ring. It is the symbol of the betrothal of the wedding of the Church of Christ. The city is of pure, transparent gold with a diamond setting. And um, actually, that's exactly what we begin with when John says, come, and I'm going to show you, um, I'm going to show you the tabernacle of God. And he actually says exactly that, that it is um, the bride, that that. Um, from heaven, God as bride adorned for her husband. And it, when it comes, it has, now we have the dimensions, but now we have 12 different foundations that make up this city, and it is a city, and it actually gives us the precious stones that are the foundation for these 12 different levels, and they have the names of the apostles on them. Verse 19. And the foundation of the wall of the city was adorned with all kinds of precious stones. And as we go through here, the first one is jasper. Its color is clear. The second one is a sapphire. Its color is blue. It could also uh, be red. Um, the third one is chalcedon, its color is greenish. The fifth is sardonyx. Its color is red. Six is sardis. This is a fiery bright red. Uh, the crystallite is sort of a golden amber yellowish color. The eighth is beryl. Its color is green like an emerald. Topaz, also a greenish yellow. Christophras is a color of, of gold and green. Uh, Jackson. Uh, the color is violet. And I actually had the last one is amethyst. I have a nice chunk of amethyst at home. It's not pure. But um, that is purple. So in your wildest dreams, trying to imagine 1,500 miles of these foundations, uh, wide, length, and height. And they have 12 of them going up. And how the Lord's going to break them up and make them livable and inhabitable place prepared for you, I have no idea, except that um, it's called the bride, and it comes as something that's so beautiful, everybody comments on a wedding day, oh, the bride was so beautiful, and all the attention is on the bride and how she adorned herself and made herself, because that was the special day. The New Jerusalem is a city of light and color. And God is light and he is there. The city is described as a jasper stone as clear as crystal. 
And all of this color will be coming out and flooding God's universe. The jasper stone is a spear, and the city, the New Jerusalem, um, will have a source of light that we read about in verse 22. Verse 21, we've got to do the gates. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. That's where we get the pearly gates of heaven. It's really the pearly gates of the New Jerusalem. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the temple, are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it and the lamb in its light. All right, let me try to... Um, explain what I think is going on here. When, if you bought your wife a diamond and you were out inspecting it, he, they, the jeweler would come out and he would take out his glass and he would put it under a very bright light so that you could examine it. And the value of the diamond would be determined if it, how many carats it was or if it had any flaws. Now to determine this, you had to shine light into it and then it would reflect back to you um, the brightness and, and the beauty of the diamond. Well, that's not the case here. What you have is a city of pure gold with these different levels of these valuable gems with it being encompassed with a diamond itself. But instead of the light coming from the outside in, we have the light of God the Father himself. In the Old Testament, it's called the Shekinah glory of the presence of God. So now imagine the light source being at the very, very center. No more any sun. There's no moon. So the whole universe is lit from the inside out, being refracted through these unbelievably beautiful layers of precious stones that are going out and lighting the entire universe. What I just tried to put into words cannot be put into words because it's going to be something beyond description and um, it's going to be prepared, especially because the Bible talks about you need to turn to Malachi. I missed this during the first service. I told my wife, I said, I missed Malachi. I really wanted that. It's an important verse. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament and it ties into you and I here, and, but I like the way that it, it describes it. There's a book of remembrance in verse 16. It says, Then those who feared the Lord and spoke one to another, and the Lord listened and heard them. And so a book of remembrance was written before them, and those who fear the Lord and those who meditate on his name. Do you know that when you're hanging and you're fellowshipping, that the Lord is, hey, they're talking about me. Write it down. That's what it says. And then he says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them. Here we have this beautiful city of gold, precious metals, and the light source is none other than God the Father, emulating into however big God's universe is at that time, it certainly will 
um, be the light for the, for the new earth. But it talks about the days when the Lord will make up his jewels. All right, chapter 22. Everything in chapter 21 has been pretty much mineral and precious stones. And we think, well, you know, I thought I sort of had this feeling about heaven of lush, flowing fields and rivers and just that sort of a beauty. Well, don't be disappointed. We're not done with the Bible yet. Chapter 22 says, And he showed me a pure river of water, of life clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. So there's water. And in the midst of the street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life. Do you know that the tree of life has not been mentioned since Genesis? You find it in Genesis, and you find it in Revelation. All of a sudden, here it is again. Tell me that this book isn't divinely woven together. Bore 12 manners of fruit, each tree yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. Evidently, uh, we're fruit eaters just like Adam and Eve were in the garden. Um, He says you can eat of any fruits of the tree that you want. They're all yours. Go for it. Except that one. (laughs) The tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. That one's off limits. So, of course, that's the one they were interested in. And um, so there will be, you know, the, the water, the trees, and I believe things more beautiful than we could possibly imagine. There will be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants will serve him. Now, I kiddingly say from time to time, we're reading somewhere, Isaiah 26, 3. I'll say, that's my favorite verse. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts in thee. Oh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Oh, that's my favorite verse. He who knew no sin became sin for me. That's my favorite verse. But this is my favorite verse. Revelation 22, verse 4. Because to me, I remember the first time I read the book of Revelation. I read it, and I thought, that's the most incredible thing I've ever read. And I didn't understand one word of it. But I believed every word of it, even though I didn't understand it. But when I got to verse 22, verse 4, this really nailed me to the wall. For it says, and they shall see his face, finally. And his name will be on his forehead. Now, the reason your name has to be in your forehead is God's universe is very, very vast. And the probability of you getting lost out there is good. So you're going to need, your, like, mom clips your name on, so when you get lost, an angel will be able to take you home and get you back to the right place. I'm making that up. They shall see his face. When I met the Lord Jesus, and he came into my life, Um, and he gave me that peace, and I know his voice, and I know his love. And all of a sudden, I love Jewish people. Why? Because Jesus was Jewish. And if Jesus is Jewish, then I love Jewish people, period. But then there's this longing of wanting to actually see him. And um, I was talking it over with Judy this morning, coming to church or at home around the kitchen table, about Isaac and Rebekah. Sarah had died, and Abraham wanted to get a bride 
for his son Isaac, but not from the land that he was living with. So he sent his servant, his unnamed servant, not named in this story, but in a couple chapters earlier, his name is Eliezer, which means comforter. So here we have a picture of a father sending a servant whose name is comforter, who's to go into a far land and get a bride and bring that bride back to Isaac so he could be comforted after his mother's death. And there's one of the most beautiful pictures of what the kingdom of heaven is all about. God sent his only begotten son into the world for a bride, to pick out a bride. Who's doing the picking? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, unnamed, always bringing the attention not to himself, to Jesus, only talking about Isaac. When Eliezer came with all the all that money and he put that, that gold ring into Rebecca's nose, Uncle Laban sure liked that. I like this guy. He's got money. <laughs> and he says, well, I'm here in a business. Either you can help me or you can't. I came to look for a bride. And I want it to be part of, part of the family, not the heathens, but from my own kin. And they went to Rebecca and said, what do you think? You want to go with this guy or not? And um, she says, yeah, I'm going to do it. They wanted her to stay 10 days, but she says, no, I want to go right now. And so I, I, I thought of the journey. If I'm Rebecca traveling now back to the land. The Bible tells us that when they got close to meeting each other, Isaac had never seen Rebecca. Rebecca had never seen Isaac. If that's going to be your husband, and you can see that dad's pretty rich, so that's good. <laughs> but aren't you wondering, gee, I hope he's good looking? <laughs> Don't you think Isaac is saying, gee, I hope she's good looking? I wonder what he looks like. I wonder what she looks like. That's what's going on right now. But there's coming that time when there's going to be that reunion. And this is not only the face of the Lord, we're going to see him when we're raptured. But this is the face of the Father and the Son. And the Bible tells us that God is love. Amen? God is love, God is light, God is spirit. Those three things. Many attributes, but those are three. What does the face of love look like? If love has a face. Love has a face. And it says here, they will see the face. And you're going to see the face of love someday. It has a face. The face of the Father. Moses wanted to see his face. He said, forget about it, Moses. I'll let him walk by and you can watch the glory as he passes by, but no man can see God and live. Why? You need a glorified body. You've got to have a body that can handle it because that light source is very powerful. Man at last will see his face. This was the supreme desire voiced by Moses. It is the highest objective for living. What are you living for? As we begin to close this, I'm going to have you turn to Second Peter. And as you're turning, here's my concerns for the Bible study this morning. If you go back to verse 6, of, um, I'll just read it. He says, write these things because they're faithful and true. Let me say it again. John, write these things because they're faithful and they're true. One more time. John, write these things because they're faithful and they're true. And yet, I just 
read a story this morning that you go, you got to be kidding me. Don McLean, um, McLean is not Jewish, but he married a Jewish gal. He's written songs about Jerusalem for a Muslim Christian Jew. That was his perspective. And being probably brought up at a Christian home, he probably read the chapters that we read this morning, Castles in the Sky, wrote a song about it. I'll just quote the lyrics. I had them punched up this morning. And if she asks you why you call, tell her that I told you that I'm tired of castles in the air. I got a dream I want the world to share and castles and walls just leave me to despair. You see, he had his own dreams. He wanted to be his own God. And what the Bible exhorts us to have our, our one desire and hope is that we want to go home because Jesus said where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. And if the one you say you love the most, the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it only natural that you want to see him? An amen there somewhere. It's only natural, if you love him, that you want to see him. Oh, I want to see the one that created me. Psalm 139 says he doesn't stop thinking about you. As the sands of the sea soar his thoughts towards you all the time. You're the apple of his eye. You're all he thinks about. And he can do that on an individual basis because he's God. And that's not a problem for him. So in 2 Peter, if you're there, let's wrap this up with a therefore. In light of everything that we've studied this morning, the end of the Bible, and again, he said, the the Bible ends by saying, don't mess with this book. If you add to it, don't take away from it or add to it, because if you do, I'm going to add to you the, the plagues that are written in this book. So the Lord is serious about us taking this literally. And I'm worried that we have the castle in the air mentality that brings me to despair, that it's just a fairy tale. When I think about it, it, it sort of just grieves me. The Bible teaches us we should be just the opposite. Let's pick it up and we'll close with this this morning. He says, but verse 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That's at the end of the millennium. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, we look forward to this new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation as our beloved brother Paul, according to his wisdom, has given and has written to you. And it says, looking forward to these things. What are you looking forward to this morning? uh, One of the reasons that it's important to be involved with Christian fellowship, be plugged into a Bible-believing church, is that we get an hour with you here And then Wednesday, and if you come to Men's Women's Prayer on Saturday mornings, that's not too many hours. 
And we got all the rest of the time where the world is trying to influence us. So in order, as it says in Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. A lot of people think, I don't need to go to church. I can fellowship with God better out while I'm fishing in a boat. Well, that's fine, and you might have great fellowship out there. That's not biblical. It says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. I need to be exhorted about these things because my heart is fickle, and my heart can be led in a lot of different directions. But my Bible tells me that this should be the priority, and I should be looking forward with longing for the one who saved me because I love him. And I really do, like Rebecca, I want to know what Isaac looks like. And uh, having said that, it says, and do it all that much more as you see the day approaching. Final question. Do you see the day approaching? Instructions, what do we do? This more often. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And the exhortation, your word tells us to exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest we would become hardened. Lord, keep our hearts soft. You call us your bride and you're our groom. And you've prepared for us a honeymoon suite that we are very much looking forward to. And my real prayer is that this won't be a fantasy of castles in the sky, but a reality that your word clearly tells us that you're preparing for us and that where you are, We're going to be also. In Jesus' name, amen.